All right, so let's talk about Micah. Um, so first we have the context. So right off the bat in Micah 1, it says that he served during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which is basically 750 to 700. Um, he is Micah of Morasheth, which is a town in southern Judah. If you look, it is right there. Um, so kind of near Lachish, which he mentions a couple times. And um, recently, decently close to Jerusalem, but kind of in this, this central plain near um, Philistine, near the Philistine city-states. There's no mention of his father. Usually it says, the word of the Lord came to blank, son of blank, right? Um, which I guess he may have been a peasant, and he, his father wasn't anyone of note. There was no reason to mention his father. And so you see a lot of this kind of rural versus city dynamic in the text, uh, where he's always kind of harping on the city, the city life, and the ways that um, people in the city oppress other people. He was contemporaries with Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea, so they were prophesying at the same time. And Jeremiah, who's kind of the generation after them, references him directly and talks about the faith of Micah of Moriseth. And so this is a time of Assyrian expansion. So you have um, kind of three Assyrian emperors in this time. The Syro-Ephraimite War, which is in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, was when Ephraim, Israel, and Aram, or Syria, Damascus, right, kind of decided, we're going to quit paying tribute to Assyria. And they tried to get um, Ahaz down in Judah to do it too. And he was like, no, I'm not messing with this. I'm going to keep paying them tribute. And so they actually invaded Judah and tried to overthrow him to put in a new king who would rebel against um, Assyria with them. And so um, Ahaz ended up actually getting help of Assyria to help defeat his enemies to the north. And it's just kind of after that point that um, you can kind of see right here, right? This part got fully kind of put into the empire while Judah was still a tribute state. In 721, Samaria falls after a three-year siege to the Assyrian Empire. And so it's the end of the northern kingdom. And then um, kind of think about Hezekiah with the siege. Um, there's a failed siege of Jerusalem in 701 when Assyria tried to conquer Jerusalem but ended up falling. Um, also, this is kind of the introduction of new economic systems. Things like property, money, debt um, are introduced that really, and you start to see the stratification of classes, of the haves and haves nots, as the people at the top, as we see in chapter 2, begin to accumulate more and more and more land. Um, because back then, wealth is land. I was uh -huh. trying to follow that history. Mm -hmm. um, so was the group that was didn't want to pay tribute, were they, in, is, they were part of Israel? Yes. So you have, um, if we look right, we can go back to this map. So here you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then here's Aram out of Damascus. Um, and so the two of these guys said, hey, let's put paying tribute to Assyria. We're strong enough, and let's get Judah to help us out. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, said, Nah, y'all, I'm, I'm good. I'm not, yeah. I'm not fighting against them. And so they said, Okay, well, we'll invade you. And so there's this really devastating, almost civil war that kind of happened. 
And so Judah said, hey, Assyria, who at this time up here, you know, you want to help me out? So they came and basically absorbed them into the empire. And Judah was just a tributary state, still paying tribute. And then, um, like the next, see, so that would have been in 735. So like 30 years later, they came back and they actually invaded from from Philistine. And so that's why it um, mentions Lachish a lot, because that's one of the cities that they kind of marched through to try to take over Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Yes, that's, I've got it. Thank you. All right, so there's kind of three parts of this. Let's see. Um, so chapters 1 through 3, you have this judgment against the nations and their leaders. Then you have the restoration of Zion, chapters 4 through 5. Some scholars think this was written... During the exile or after the exile, um, after the ministry of Micah, someone, scribes, may have added that. Other scholars say, no, we think that's actually from Micah. So I don't know enough about the scholarship to say one way or the other. Um, And then chapter 6 and 7, you have this lawsuit against Israel, which is really interesting in chapter 6, and an expression of hope. And so you also have this kind of back and forth, um, where it's judgment, God's judgment, and then, oh, I'm going to restore you. Judgment, I'm going to restore you. Judgment, restoration. Um, That goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so you see this kind of ebb and flow, um, you know, that can kind of remind you of the history of Israel, right, where there's this, this back and forth, but you also see it through this prophetic text. So in chapter 1, it starts out, as most of these do, the word of the Lord came to Micah. Um, and, you know, and Micah, of course, is from Judah, as we pointed out. So you have this condemnation of Israel. And it's like, yeah, that's right, you tell them. And then says, talks about evil, and says, for it has come to Judah, even Jerusalem. And that's, you know, if you're a Judahite at the time, you're like, oh, no, not, not us. I thought you were talking about those... Um, those backsliders up north. 10 through 16 is this really interesting part where it lists towns in Judah and has these puns about their destruction. So, for example, Bethlehem Arphra means house of dust. And so it says, Bethlehem Arphra, roll yourself in the dust, right? Some of the puns we've kind of lost in translation, like no one really knows what. But there's like, so it'd be like Nashville, gnash your teeth. Chattanooga, shatter your bones. Knoxville, knock you down. You know, like these kind of puns based on their names. What's, what's going to happen to them? Then we have chapter 2, which is woe to the oppressors. Did you come up with those? Huh? Did you come up with those puns? Yeah. Why? Very good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> you went by them so fast, I figured you must have taken some time on that. No, no, I literally took like maybe two or three minutes to think about, think about, um, I tried to, th- the first one I was like, Philadelphia feels bad or something. I'd, so chat, chat is chatter, chatter. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was, was good. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of when I mentioned these new economic systems as people are starting to accumulate more and more land. Um, verse 2, it talks about those who covet and seize fields. They rob a man and his house. Verse 9 talks about, hey, talks about um, evicting women and children from their homes. 
and so the Lord says, I'm planning against this family a calamity. Um, and so there's lots of kind of doom and gloom until you get to verse 12 at the very end of the chapter. He says, well, okay, I'll gather up a remnant of Israel like sheep in a fold. And like, yeah, a lot of y'all are going <laughs> to face destruction, but like I remember my promises, I remember my covenant, and I will. So there's a couple verses of kind of like restoration. Um, and so then in chapter 3 you have this denouncing of the rulers in Judah um, starts off right at the bat and says is it not for you to know justice Like you should know justice, you're the rulers you're the ones who studied these texts and verse 2 and 3 there's this really kind of grotesque cannibalism metaphor that talks about as a way of explaining the injustice and the way that the rulers have treated the people talks about like grinding up bones into stew and um, very, very evocative kind of emotional language. Um, and it says, you know, these, these people, they cry out, but God will hide His face from them. He says, no, you, if you've turned away from me, now that you're facing, you know, oppression from the Assyrians, sorry. Um, in the second half of the chapter is this condemnation of false prophets. That's this this is an old, I think this is from the 11th century, a Byzantine um, mural called the False Prophet. I just think it's funny how the little demon looks like a frog and just smiling like, hey! But you see the False Prophet spewing his, uh, his demonic words. Um, but this verse um, 5 and 7, or I think it's verse 7, was really interesting. I actually texted it to one of my buddies who's um, studying Hebrew knows way more about Hebrew than I do to get some insight but it says they cry peace but declare holy war against God and I thought that's weird you don't usually see like holy war in the scripture and so what it actually is is the Hebrew word is declare holy so they consecrate war like they say that war is holy not it's not holy war it's declare holy is kind of the, the verb and so I think that's really interesting that, you know, they cry peace, but they're actually saying that war is this holy good thing. Um, in verse 8, Micah says, after condemning all these false prophets, but me, I'm filled with the Spirit. <laughs> um, the, the Lord, you know, speaks through me, um, which you love to see. And, you know, those who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. So you can kind of see this imagery of you're building up your wealth and your power as a state, as a nation, um, on kind of on the bones of those who you have oppressed. So really kind of dramatic language in chapter 3. Zion seems to be used in so many different ways. What, mm -hmm. what is that? Um, or what do you think that symbolizes? Yeah, so so Zion, yeah, it's used in so many different ways. It's typically just another name for Jerusalem. And a lot of this, it refers to the holy city, kind of the city as this holy mountain of God. Later in the in the book, um, it talks about when God comes back um, and restores as this huge mountain and all the people will flow to the mountain and will live in peace and prosperity and everything will be great. I actually think that's, is that in the next chapter? Yeah. Um, so at the beginning of chapter 4, um, it talks about 
Here, we can just look at it right now. And it will come in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised up above the hill and the people will stream to it. And so just this imagery. And so Zion is used a lot kind of... I'm assuming it's used in Revelation. Um, Is it used in Revelation or does John not use the language of Zion? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, What is your version? So, so um, I, I love it. So English doesn't have a second person plural pronoun. We just say you or you, right? Um, unless you're from the South. And what's fun about this is it lets you, um, let's see, where is it? Is it under settings? <laughs> so you could use... Oh, my. Um, you guys, use guys, yins, you lot, yees, use, um, but you know, y'all, y'all kind of makes the most sense, right? And so it just takes all, Hebrew has, you know, a a single, a um, singular second person pronoun, and so does Greek, and a plural one. Um, Most languages do. English, we used to have you and thou, and thou meant you, and you meant y'all. But we, uh, we kind of, for whatever reason, lost thou, and thou disappeared, and so we got stuck with you. And so it helps to show, like, when in the text it's talking about you singular, or all of you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a fun little program. Um, uh, and so it, it, has, it doesn't have a ton of different versions. It just has um, these ones right here. But you can do like inline, like I can add, you know, the KGV and we can kind of see the difference and it lets you, you know, it shows you the, the language. So yeah, it's, it's a fun little thing. Is it free? Yeah, just yallversion.com. It doesn't always work. Like sometimes when I try to search or if I click like find all occurrences, it'll just load forever. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's free, but it's a it's a cool cool program. You should check it out. So this is a statue outside the United Nations, um, which we can debate how effective the United Nations actually is at beating shorts into plowshares. But that's the ideal, at least. And so chapter four has this future day of the Lord, where the Lord, you know, like we said, it's this big mountain of Zion. All the nations will come and be judged, and then they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and never again will they train for war. And so this very peaceful, and you can think, you know, we talked about all the different wars happening during this time, where it seems like each generation there was another disastrous war. Um, And so another interesting part is God says, I will gather the lame and afflicted and make them a strong nation after this time. And um, it's not the strong and the powerful who I'm going to make my nation out of, but it's the weak and afflicted. And then there's this interesting, I didn't really have enough time to really dive into it, but it talks about the daughter of Zion and this kind of birth, pregnancy metaphor. Um, it refers to Babylonian captivity. Um, but I didn't really spend a ton, ton of time 
and research what was going on in that the metaphor. The gathering the lame and afflicted mm -hmm. seems to be a theme in some of the minor prophets. Mm -hmm. For because sure. Because I think it was last week with Emily, like we, it was something similar of, of, of that, of the, the people who left over will be those that are the less thought of. Mm -hmm. And it's just, to me, it, it gives me a little bit of hope of redemption. Like yeah. it's not, it's not the powerful that will be the strong nation. It's those that are kind of left over or those that may be, have something wrong with them that, that aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right. And then chapter five may be the one that we're kind of familiar with um, from a Christian point of view is this coming king from Bethlehem. And so that's what Matthew, when Matthew is, you know, writing, just like the prophet Micah said, the king is going to come from Bethlehem. And so in chapter 5, talks about this new king born from Bethlehem who will deliver us. Um, I thought this was an interesting metaphor. Uh, this king will shepherd Assyria with the sword, which is an interesting um, kind of play on words when you, and it, it's using this pastoral language, right, as a shepherd. <laughs> Shepherding them with the sword. Um, it says, I will destroy, talking about Assyria, I will destroy your horse and chariots, your fortifications, your sorceries and fortune tellers, idols, asherah poles. And you see this, like, military power and the spiritual power. So both, like, the military might of the Assyrian Empire will be destroyed by this coming king but also their like spiritual power. All of their idols and their high places and their Asherah poles will all be torn down and destroyed. Um, by a little bitty baby. Isn't, isn't that crazy? A little bitty baby coming in and uh, destroying all the powers. Can I get an amen? <laughs> you know, why did he choose Bethlehem? I mean, I know... Mm -hmm. But for Micah's time... Well, that that's where. David, David yeah, I think it was just referring to the house of David, and you know Benjamin. Um, no, Bethlehem's Judah. Benjamin was Saul, right? David, yeah, David was yeah. Judah. Um, yeah, I think it's just. So it's like saying uh, there'll be another David. There'll be another David, basically, is the way. Um, and you know, you see that in the Gospels when the language "son of David" is used, which is. Still amazing to me because if you if you read or if you know the stories of when Israel wanted a king, mm -hmm. God doesn't go back to the very first king that they have to say, "Oh, you'll get you'll this king will be rude." It's the second king. Mm -hmm. I guess it's that it's the one that is after God's heart. That you know that he is. I don't know. It's just a, a yeah. fascinating imagery of Israel wanted a king. They ended up with Saul. Saul was not a good king, and so it the king was. Re deemed by David, who mm -hmm. still wasn't a great king, but like there, you know, it's, instead of going all the way back to Saul, mm -hmm. the one that, that he helped them choose, they went with David. So yeah, well, and you got to think about dynasties too. You know, everything back then is done by families, and so I think David, through the all the kings of Judah, are all part of the Davidic dynasty. Versus Saul, is kind of his own thing. It's true. You know, he David wasn't descended. So if you go back to the beginning of the dynasty, it would start with David, not Saul. Um, so chapter six, we're gonna let's see what time is it. Um, yeah, we're gonna read through chapter six together. And, think, and since there's 
few enough of us, instead of breaking up into groups, we might just all kind of discuss the questions together. Um, but this is a really interesting chapter where it's basically God is taking Israel to court. And it's this lawsuit. Um, God says, arise, plead your case. You know, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I ransomed you from slavery. Uh, now, look, you've broken my covenant. What do you have to say for yourself? Let, let the mountains hear, you know, <laughs> tell me. And so Micah kind of responds and says, does the Lord want sacrifices, this, that, that? And the verse most of us might know from Micah, the one you hang up, you know, on, in your house somewhere. No, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's what the Lord requires. Um, and then there's this whole part about kind of the rich men of the city and those who have unequal scales and cheat people. Um, it says, the rich men of the city are full of violence, her residents speak lies, therefore I will give you up for destruction. Um, so it doesn't seem like the, like God really liked Micah's <laughs> attempt to, to plead his case. Um, and then finally, in the final chapter, we see, again, this kind of Micah's lament. He uses lots of agrarian metaphors, so like vines, fig trees, um, which again, kind of, especially when right before he was really attacking the men of the city, you see again this kind of rural-urban conflict going on. Um, and so you have this restoration of a fallen Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, and you end with, again, restoration. Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity? Who does not retain anger, delights in your unchanging love? Um, you will cast all their sins in the depths of the sea. And so again, this kind of, it ends on this good note of restoration and forgiveness um, for the iniquities of Israel. So there's three parts. Um, you know, we talked about Math Micah 5.12, which is cited in Matthew 2, as the king coming from Bethlehem. Also in Matthew 10, Jesus, when he's talking about, you know, who is my mother, who is my father, um, you know, and kind of, um, I guess that's Luke 4, is a prophet's not um, in his own house, isn't welcome in his own hometown. But I, I should have looked up the context. George probably knows the context. But um, he cites Micah and says, a man's enemy are those of his own household. Um, and then Jeremiah, also kind of writing the generation after Micah, quotes Micah and says, Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become ruined. So, um, not really great. I wonder if he goes back to the Gregorian metaphors because as you said at the beginning, he was mm -hmm. more, he just doesn't say a son of. Yeah. So, so he went back to what he knew. Mm -hmm. Like he may have known that to make, you always use metaphors of what you're more familiar with mm -hmm. than what you're not. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, so modern day connection. I want us to listen to this news story about um, Dickerson um, Pike mobile home residents who are facing displacement. Um, and so kind of as we think about how this might apply in our modern time, and I hope this sound works. Nashville's council is buying more time for mobile home. Council is buying more time for mobile homeowners on Diggers and Pike. 
This week, the council delayed rezoning so residents could work out a deal with the landowner. WPLN's Embryo Crutchfield reports. Leslie Matuta usually makes baleadas once a week for her three sons. It's a popular Honduran dish that her kids hang around the kitchen for. They call it baleadas day. Se ponen a saltar y oh my god, que me voy a comer baleadas. But this week, she was cooking their tortillas on an outdoor grill for the Tenants Union fundraiser. The Dickerson Pike mobile homeowners organized it to fight for a chance of staying in the city. They could be displaced if council rezones the property and makes way for a two-building mixed-use development. For Matuta, it brings back the stress she felt two years ago, trying to create stability in a new country. Siento que ahora decirle a mis hijos que tenemos que buscar otro lugar, eso es lo más difícil desde que supe de la noticia. She says telling her kids that they needed to find a new home is the hardest part. Nashville's council has pushed off voting twice in hopes of avoiding an abrupt displacement. But back in August, around 10 families had their trailers moved to a Hunter's Lane property. When mobile homeowner Gisela Olalde arrived, she found out there was no electricity, water, or heat yet. She's still waiting. It's just affecting me in all the aspects of my life. I don't even have a place to cook. I'm just sleeping in my mom's living room, going to work. Doing the same thing. I mean, my kids, my kids have no clothes, no toys. Right now, there's a deadlock in negotiations since the tenants want to get paid for the loss of their homes. WPLN News reached out to Tony Claus, the current landowner, but he declined to comment. Ambriel Crutchfield, WPLN News. Um, so this is something that's happening right now. I know some folks involved in the organizing here. Druce is Dickerson Road, United in Struggle. So there's this. Um, I think it's about 20 families in a mobile home um, place off of Dickerson Road. The landowner has realized, hey, this is worth a ton of money because I live in Nashville. Um, and is trying to rezone it to build some big, huge apartment complexes. Um, and so they're waiting on Metro Nashville keeps um, pushing down the rezoning hearing to try to give them time to negotiate with him. Um, because they're like, we need, if you're going to evict us and kick us off of this land, we need help moving our trailer park, our trailer homes to somewhere else. And as they said, um, some of the families who left earlier in the process, he was like, yeah, there's this place out there you can go. And there was no water, no electricity, no heat, nothing. Um, and so this is something that thousands of people in Nashville deal with um, as our property values increase and um, evictions, when landlords you know, say, okay, I'm selling the house to build something that's way more money, sorry, you gotta go. So it kind of, that's when I read chapter two, that's immediately what I thought about is, woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds, when morning comes, they do it for it is of the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. Y'all stripped the robe of the garment from an unsuspecting passerby, from those returned from war. The women of my people y'all evict, each one from her pleasant home. From her children y'all take my splendor forever. Um, so just wanted to draw that connection. So is the, the city of Nashville is trying to negotiate it where the people would have a place to go? 
Um, I, I, there definitely are some city councilors who are helping in that process, um, especially the ones in that part in East Nashville. But um, what was I going to say? Um, right now, it's more local organizers who are trying to put pressure on the landowner to negotiate. And so they're doing protests, and um, they had a fundraiser a couple of weeks ago. That's what they were reporting on, where they were selling food to try to get money for the campaign. And it said in the story that the, the landowner refused to comment. But yeah. do you know any more about that? Like, does he have a... Like, I wonder how long they've known about the... I mean, because you, you have to kind of balance uh -huh. the... So the, he, the somebody who owns the land, they do have the right to do what mm -hmm. they want. But at the same time, you don't you want to help the people. Yeah. And so, like I said, you can't just be all about profit. But I just wonder how mm -hmm. how long the landowner has been. Yeah. That. So, I think they found out in August, maybe. I'm trying to remember exactly when. I know the first. I know they've postponed the rezoning hearing twice. It was supposed to be in September, they moved it to October, and they moved it to November. Um, Did the first lot move over to this other thing? I'm not sure exactly the, the timeline. Um, but it is, it is true, I think, that sometimes we just don't know the stories about mm -hmm. the people that are struggling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have to find ways to try to be where you know yeah. that guy owns the other land? Hmm? He just told me to go to his other land. You know? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. what in the world that's about. Because, like, why does it not have water? Yeah, no, exactly. It's not the option for the city to put in. Yeah. So, I'm going to read chapter six for us, and we'll kind of discuss this as a larger group um, in the last 15 minutes or so. All right. God's indictment of his people. Can y'all read that okay? Is that big enough? Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Listen, y'all mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and y'all's enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, I think it's really interesting that Miriam is mentioned because uh, usually it's kind of male centric. But no, Miriam. She does have a, she does have a song. So. She does have. She has a great song, <laughs> um, a song that Mary later references in the Magnificat. Um, My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous act of the Lord. And so here is Micah's response. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Uh, and you see this kind of um, 
what's the word I'm looking for, kind of satire, this um, exaggeration, right? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams or in 10,000 rivers of oils? Shall I prevent, present my firstborn son for my rebellious acts? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And so it's almost, there's almost kind of humor there, right? Where it's like super dramatic over the, well, I sacrificed my child to, no. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And then here's God's response. The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it's sound wisdom to fear your name. Hero tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? So short measure, right, is how you might, you know, cheat someone out of money, right? As you, you kind of short them with the way you're measuring whatever product it might be. Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and the tongue is deceitful in their mouth. I also will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sin. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give the sword. You will sow but not reap. You will tread the oil but not anoint yourself with oil. And the, and the grapes you will not drink wine. The statue of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab are observed in their devices you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. So we, we love Micah 6.8. It's a great one. <laughs> the more you read that chapter, you're like, Oof, man, that's a, not, not a feel-good kind of, yay, do justice kind of chapter. Um, so let me put. So he's saying, well, we're, we're, we are doing justice. We are trying to do this, and then God's bringing in and saying, no, this is what's going on. Um, I I think so. It 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 could be that, or it could be Micah is um, maybe acting like a character witness or something. You know, saying, uh, you know, listen, God, you know, y'all are doing all these sacrifices and all this stuff. God doesn't care about. That's not what this is about. It's about justice and kindness. And then, so, um, that's kind of the way I see it, maybe. Not as um, Amos, or excuse me, Micah is like defending the people's case. More, he's, he's not a lawyer. He's, he's kind of helping, yeah, he's, he's helping maybe translate what God's saying to the people yeah. in these verses. But it could be many different interpretations of kind of, these three verses where Micah responds in between gods. Um, yeah, I get the impression thing. that the people are claiming to be righteous because they're doing all the outward yeah. things. And Micah's like, but you're leaving aside justice and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess that brings us right to the second question is kind of in what ways do you see that we value worship? Whatever worship might mean, whether it's what we do on Sunday mornings or uh, when we sing songs, right? Or like the whole kind of institutional kind of um, part of it, overdoing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. As much as I value the 
lessons that my parents imparted in me by going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, mm -hmm. it was very easily to become, without the proper context, it was very easily for it to become that quote-unquote worship. Yeah. Just to do something without understanding that what you were doing throughout the day, like, or how you were loving other people, how you were, you know, seeking justice throughout the rest of your week. Mm -hmm. So I, I think sometimes we, and even now, even though there's only the Sunday morning and the occasional was tonight, there's still that thing of, well, this is what we do, and what we do the rest of the time is just kind of change. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, this, the showing up this morning is more important than the rest of the time. Yeah, well, that's, check your box. Yeah. Um, and we would never say that. Like, we would never say that, that or I would never say that. But at the same time, the intrinsic value I feel is that this is the most important thing, not how I love my neighbor, not how I, you know, walk with God every other day of the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my professors is a Catholic priest, and he's always complaining about people who just come to get their Mass. They just get, get their Jesus, just get their Mass and leave. And that's, that's religion, right? It's just coming, check your box, and then leaving. It's either Godfather 1 or Godfather 2 <laughs> that has that really poignant scene where mm -hmm. the, the mafia guys, the mafia guys at Catholic Mass mm -hmm. and his minions are out killing mm -hmm. all his, you know, enemies at the same time. I mean, it just, uh, if you ever, I guess, Francis Ford yeah. Coppola, whoever directed that movie was right on it. I mean, mm -hmm. just made it, just shoved it right in your face. You yeah. Know, like he's there doing all the, the Catholic rituals and then but at the same, you know, in real life, killing people. So. Yeah. Well, isn't our worship, isn't our worship doing the justice and the yeah. kindness and the, that's what I think. I mm -hmm. mean, that's all worship. Yeah, for sure. So Jesus says in somewhere, um, he's complaining about the Pharisees. He says you tied your your spices, all your, your spice rack. So mm -hmm. you're very careful to tie every little thing that you own, but you neglect justice and love of God. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, you should have done one without neglecting the other. Yeah. So he doesn't say it's an either or. Right. It's a both and. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. We can't just go and say, well, worship doesn't matter. It's what you do. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a place for ritual, for sure. But if it's done well, it, it supports doing justice instead of just one or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't be out by yourself doing justice and without being part of the community and the church and the ritual and worship. Yeah, for sure. It's just finding ways to, to make it a both hand and not in the war is the hard part. But I think I think you're exactly right. If, if we if we're worshiping God and see God and Jesus as the King and His type of kingdom, and that's part of what we talk about in worship and acknowledge in worship, and that's part of what communion is the the, the suffering of Jesus mm -hmm. and how that calls us to suffer with the people who are suffering. Yeah. It can be a really strong combination that you don't get if you're just out there doing social justice with no worship. For sure. But if you're just doing the worship with no social justice, it's, mm -hmm. it's yeah. It's gotta be it can be very powerful when it's combined. 
and it's really sad when it's not. Mm-hmm. You just have to worship it. And I've been taking off of what you're saying. Um, it, and it goes the other way, too, because I've seen or been around people who are so into social justice mm-hmm. that there's almost a hatred involved with it. So it's mm-hmm. even though they might be doing something important, but it's their attitude. The attitude around it is troublesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and it kind of loses the kindness. It right? loses, exactly. And I have a story because this just kind of fits. Because uh, I'm getting my roof done. Okay. And so I was talking to one of the head guys, and he was talking about the company he works for. And I said, Well, do you like your job? And he goes, It's the best. You know, you don't hear that that much. He goes, I wouldn't be in any other company. I wouldn't be in any other company. Huh. And I said, Well, why is that? And he said, Well, Here's, a, here's an example. The owner of the company had a, a fella fall off the roof and broke his legs. And he made sure that he paid that guy, even though he couldn't work, until he went through all his rehab, and until he got back on the job. And then he couldn't do the same he was doing, and so he created a job. Huh. The, the guy who injured the stuff. And I just thought, you know, no wonder. He and he then he would told he said there was another guy that had a uh, he'd come to work always with a blackout mm-hmm. and his girlfriend was beating him up. And so he told the guy, he said, I can't I want you're gonna if you want to keep your job, I'm gonna pay for an apartment for wow. you living until you get your life straightened out. And then but you have to leave her. Mm-hmm. Because I can't have you coming in my customers with black eyes on. <laughs> so, but you know, he was how generous was that? Mm-hmm. That that just really. Yeah. If only that was always the case. Well, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't everyone? And, and be I like think that? this man that I little I know about him is mm-hmm. a Christian company. Yeah. Kind of. I, I told him I said, well, you know, I think he's a Christian. He goes, well, but he's normal. <laughs> I said, well, Which what speaks loads. What does that mean? I said, what do you mean? Whatever he wants He drinks a beer, don't So yeah, I guess just this last question before we close. If anyone, you know, what what does that look like today? Like, how do you see? You know, I think which. The example you provide is is a great, great example of the way that someone um, actually valued their worker and it just, oh, you broke your legs, okay, good luck, see ya. Yeah. Um, I think it's always acknowledging the people who are below you, like, whether that's not below you in the sense that they're less than you, but like, those that are serving you, whether that's your wait staff, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the people, like, if you go to a conference, the people who are... So, who are taught to be invisible, yeah. like to you know go and get plates and then but not even acknowledge his smile, but just acknowledging them and thanking them. Those small things, I think, is it's what to me is how I see if Jesus were in today's society, mm-hmm. he would be the people who would be having friendships with those people, those yeah. that the society says just be in the background. Look, you know, don't be a wallflower. So there's kind of two ways you can be kind. Yeah. 
there's like this, you know, southern kind of bless your heart kindness that um, might not be, you know, on the surface level it might seem kind, but deeper down it's like, no, you know, versus like real genuine <coughs> kindness. Yeah, like you, like you talked about. All right. Well, thank you all. Great discussion. And next week, I will be doing Haggai. So, we'll have haggis. So, yeah, some, some haggis. So, y'all, y'all read, read that. Your homework is to read Haggai. That's the plural of Haggis. Haggai. Haggai. Who knows?